As you know, we've been talking together about living a life that outlives me. The idea is, is really pretty simple, although the lessons may be complex as we go through what we're learning. The, the, the basic concept is simple, and that is that you're not going to live forever. Now, one of these days, this life as we know it is going to come to an end. But we can live this life as long as we have it. We can live it in a way that leaves some kind of impact that, that continues to have an influence. Our light and our saltiness could continue to influence the world even after this life is over. In the last 48 hours, I've gone to two different funerals. And in both of those funerals, the, those who loved um, the deceased were able to stand in front of the crowd and say, this is how my loved one's life continues. And I just hope that one of these days somebody will be able to say, you know, John's gone. He's in a box wearing his Dr. Pepper tie and he's out of here. But something still, the work he did still matters. And the lives that he touched still matters. Wouldn't it be great if people could say that about us? You know, the stuff that we do that's about us winds up staying in the box with us. When Robbie and his folks wheel us out of those two doors, the stuff that we did for us goes with us. But the stuff that we did for others, and more importantly, the stuff that we did that actually brought glory to God, that stuff continues because it's bigger than us. And so we're looking at the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, we see some great examples of people who figured out how to live their lives in such a way that their lives outlived them these great Christian leaders who started the church and turned the world upside down. And we're looking at it, not every chapter, but basically chapter by chapter. And we're learning from these great leaders of the early church. Today, I want us to go to Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, we find one of the first sermons that was preached in the Christian church. And what's amazing is apparently the entire sermon has been, has been protected in Holy Scripture. There's 52 verses in this sermon. So get comfortable because I'm going to read the whole sermon. No, I won't. Stephen is, he was one of those that was chosen in chapter 6 uh, to serve as the precursor for what we call deacons. The, the pastoral leaders of the church could not provide all of the needs for everyone. And so there were some who were being overlooked and so they were instructed, pick out some guys that 
are full of wisdom, full of grace, willing to serve, and put those guys to work. Well, Stephen was one of them. And his ministry was so powerful that it, it raised the ire of uh, some of the political religious leaders of the day. In other words, they got jealous. And because they got jealous, they were upset with Stephen. And the high priest accused Stephen, made him speak for himself, which wound up being a big mistake on the high priest's part. Stephen, you speak for yourself. Stephen said, okay, cool. Buckle up. Here we go. 52 verses. In that 52 verses, he leads the listeners from Abraham to Jesus. He covers 2,000 years of Hebrew history. And when he told the whole story, 2,000-year story, he boiled it down to one indictment. You're forgetting who you are and whose you are. That's what I want us to think about together this morning. Who, we want to remember who you are and whose you are. Now listen real carefully and let me summarize Stephen's sermon for you. He started with Abraham. We're going to start at verse 2. Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. In other words, he said, look at me. Listen to me and listen good. What I'm about to say, you need to hear. Many of these people are not yet Christians, which you're about to find out because of the way they react to the sermon. They've all grown up Jews. And he shows them respect. Brothers and fathers, those of us in the nation of Israel, we're all family. Listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Now notice his point. God was the one acting. God reached over here where nobody knew anything about him and he plucked Abram out and said, Abram, you're going to start a whole new nation for me and you're going to leave your family. You're going to leave everything you know. You're going to come over here and we're going to start something new. God was at work. And now Stephen says to the Jews, y'all lived here your whole life. You have forgotten that God's the one that did it. God's the one who brought us here. God's the one who promised this land to us. He's the one who provided it for us. He says, y'all have forgotten how we got here. Well, Abram became Abraham, followed God, continued to, to, to build the, a, a nation for God. Unfortunately, his kids made some bad decisions and almost squandered everything away. 
And then we jump down to, to verse 9. And in verse 9, the patriarchs, remember that's basically Abraham's kids, grandkids, his descendants. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. So the humans messed up again, but God acted again. The humans messed up and sold Joseph into slavery, and God said, I've got this. He's going to be in slavery in Egypt, but you know what? That's good because I want to use one of my people in Egypt. He began to work in Joseph's life, and Joseph became a well-respected leader. And when the rest of the world was going through famine, Joseph was able to provide. He took care. He was God's man at God's time. Well, they wound up settling. God's people wound up settling there in Egypt, and they stayed there for a very long time. They were second-class citizens. Really, they were basically slaves in Egypt. They settled there. They lived there generation after generation. And then Moses was born, this little Hebrew child. And he was raised in Egypt, although he was Hebrew. He was raised like an Egyptian he was educated. He was isolated for many years. He returned then to his people to lead them. And we can pick up the story at verse 36. You see, in 36, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness when the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Stephen is going back through Jewish history, and he's speaking to the educated Jewish leaders who knew this history better than anybody. He said, think back about the stuff you know. God took Abram, got something started. Joseph was shipped off to Egypt, and God got something started. It was time to let those people go from Egypt, and so God brought up Moses and got something started. You see, God is the one who's working throughout your history, Jewish people, and yet now you act like you don't need him anymore. He was speaking to them in a way that says, remember who you are and whose you are. So here is Moses. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's leading them through the wilderness. He's helping them. It says that he hears living oracles. In other words, God speaks directly to Moses, and he shares that with his people, not just the law, but all kinds of instruction from God. God speaks directly to Moses. Moses shares it with the people. Wow, what a wonderful, wonderful life. God has freed them. God is with them. He's got them a leader that understands him. And how did the people respond? Look at verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside 
And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They wanted to go back into slavery rather than accept God's purpose and will. In verse 40, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of, did you notice, their hands. They woke up one day, they said, you know, Moses is leading us to this God, but we can't see our God. We want a God we can see. Everybody else gets a God they can see. We want a God we can see. And so Moses has been up on a mountain a while. We haven't seen him a while. Who knows when he's coming back? Let's go ahead and make us a, a God like everybody else has. And then they danced and they celebrated. Look what we did with our hands. The God of all the universe is caring for them, is providing, is guiding, is leading. And yet they want to do things their way. Sound familiar? Stephen says, you have forgotten who God is. He picks up the story. As they're wandering through the wilderness, God meets them in the tent. They have a tabernacle. It's a church that's mobile. They wander through the wilderness. They put up the tent. They have church. They meet God. Take down the tent. Put it up. Next place, meet God. They move as it moves with them. And then eventually, once they got to the promised land, as a, as a sign of saying, you never have to wander again, let's put a temple here. Let's build a full building, not, a, not, not one on, on wheels, but a full, solid building that will always be here in which God will always meet us, verse 47. It was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You see, by the time Jesus came around and then, and then when Stephen is speaking, during that time, those religious political leaders who were in charge of the Jewish people they thought the temple was, was the thing. This was their religion now. This building had become their religion. And they were so proud of the stones. They were so proud of the gold. They were so proud that we made a house to put God in. And Stephen says, y'all misunderstood completely. You can't put God in a box. No matter how big and beautiful that box is, you can't put him in a box. You have forgotten how big God is. And he concludes his sermon with verse 51 and 2. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Yeah, yeah, I know you went through the legal outward circumcision to make a point, 
but it didn't mean anything to you. Your heart is still not of God. Your ears are still not listening. You, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. That's a good way to make great friends among the Jewish leaders. Your dads did it wrong. Your granddads did it wrong. Your great, great granddads did it wrong. And now you've done the worst wrong. You killed the very one that God sent to you. This whole sermon in, verse, in, in chapter 7 is basically this. God has been at work and you've been rejecting him. You have forgotten who you are. You are the nation of God. You're God's people. And you forgot that. And you've forgotten whose you are. You think you can put God in a box. He says you've forgotten. You've wasted opportunities. You remember when you first came to Jesus, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you remember when you first came to him? You were so humble. You knew you needed him. You were desperate. How do I know that? Because if you weren't humble and desperate, you haven't really come to him yet. When you come to Jesus, you're desperate. Lord, I can't, but you can. You're humble. I'm sorry. I'm the one that messed things up. Please forgive me. We come humble and desperate, but then before long we get comfortable. The prophet Micah speaks of it as being at ease in Zion. We've made it to where we're supposed to be, and we get comfortable. We forget who we are and whose we are. We behave like a flea in the ear of an elephant. The massive animal breaks loose from the herd and charges across a wooden bridge. And that worn out bridge shivers and groans and, and, and it, it's barely able to support the weight and it's moving back and forth as this massive animal crosses over. When they reach the other side, the flea puffs out its chest and declares, boy, did we shake that bridge. Sometimes we think we've accomplished great things and we forget that we're just along for the ride. We forget who we are and who's we are. Some of us need to remember that great old southern proverb, you dance with the one who brung you. You know that. You got a date to the homecoming dance. You go to the homecoming dance with your date, and then your date sits down at the table and you spend all night dancing with somebody else. You dance with the one who brung you. You pay attention to what God has done in your life. 
Here, Stephen says, look back over the last 2,000 years and look what God has done. And yet now when he finally fulfills his promise of a promised one, what did you do? You killed him. And so he says, you have forgotten who you are and whose you are. Beloved, we need to remember our theme verse for our church John 15, 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you bear much fruit. Without me, you can do what? Without me, you can do nothing. Don't forget who you are and whose you are. You see, the enemy wants to limit your influence here. The enemy is hoping that when your heart beats its last time and you take your final breath, that your influence in this world will end. That's what he's hoping. Because that's one less Christian that he's got to worry about. The world all of a sudden got a little dimmer and a little less salty, and he's happy. It's over. So he's going to tell you that you are someone you're not. While you're alive in this world, he doesn't want you to live the life that outlives you. So he's going to tell you you're a loser. You don't fit in. Let the church do all they want to do, but you know better. You stay out on your own. Don't even try to get in a group. Don't even try to worship. You don't need it. The enemy is going to try to confuse you as to who you are. And the enemy is going to tell you that God is less than he is. Because he wants your influence to be over when you wind up in that box. And so he's going to tell you, God may be for others. God is nice. God is good. But it's not really that big a deal. We need to remember who we are in Jesus. And we need to remember whose we are. If you are a Christian, now hear me. If you are a Christian, you are a child of the Almighty God. You are a joint heir with Jesus. You're a part of a royal priesthood. You're a part of a holy nation. You are Christ's ambassador to the world. You are an important part of the body of Christ. You are the light of the world. When I was a Baylor student, I was part-time youth director at Bellmead First Baptist Church. The pastor was Raymond Duncan. His wife told me something one time that I've never forgotten. I don't remember the context. I guess we were talking about how preacher's kids can kind of have a hard time growing up sometimes. Uh, you know, preacher's kids don't always make the best decisions, and sometimes they can be a challenge. It's because they hang out with the deacon's kids. But, um, <laughs> so for whatever reason, we were talking about that, and, and she said, you know, we always told our kids that they were expected to behave. Not because they were the pastor's kids, but because they were God's kids. And that just stuck with me. Because all of a sudden it made sense that I'm a God's kid. 
do, do I live in a way that lets people know that I'm in his family? Do they see the family resemblance in me when they look at me? Do they catch the light, taste the salt? Can they tell what family I'm a part of? If you're going to live a life that outlives you, you got to be sure that you remember who you are. A child of God. More than a conqueror. Joint heir with the Prince of Peace. And remember whose you are. Stephen told the people that day, you got a pretty temple, so what? You got a pretty temple, but you can't keep God in a box. Remember who you belong to. If you are a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, then you belong to the one who is the great I am. You belong to Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Our rock, our fortress, our father, our king, our Lord, our provider, our sustainer, our savior. He is the most high, the great physician, the great shepherd, the creator of all that is. He is eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. God is love. And that's who you belong to. Words cannot adequately define him. Creation cannot contain him. His enemies cannot defeat him. Our minds cannot comprehend him. And our hearts cannot beat without him. Don't ever take him for granted. Don't ever leave him out of your life or out of your plans. Don't ever forsake him or forget him. Don't ever forget who you are and whose you are.